0: On this episode of The London Life Scene, we talk with Mitch Chase about the topic of typology and allegory. So we cover topics like just what are these things? What are the various views on them? How does typology or allegory really relate to the intention of the biblical writers? Does it mean we're reading things into the text? Must these types or allegories always be historical? What is the relationship between these two things? And much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or you can email us at contact at LondonLyceum.com, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak.
1: And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew.
0: We're, we're a podcast that's devoted to thinking, and we don't want to just think. We don't want to just exercise our minds as an intellectual pursuit by itself. We want to do it well, and we think James 3 gives us a lot of insight into how to do that well, so we've tried to mold that down into this idea of creating an intellectual culture that is full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. James 3 talks about this idea of the meekness of wisdom, and we really want the podcast to embody that. So in an effort to do that, uh, we've, we bring on all sorts of guests who have thought about lots of various theological topics and ideas. Uh, and I think today we have a great guest who's modeled this and who is also a Baptist. I know we've got guys on the show who aren't Baptist, um, But Mitch is, I think, a model Baptist. He's a pastor. So I think he's modeling a lot of what we want to do here with the show in general. And today we're going to talk about the topic of typology. So he's got, a and, and I guess allegory too, he's got a book on this, 40 questions and answers to it. Uh, so we commend that book to you. I, I've seen, I mean, just all sorts of people have been getting it and reading it. So I think it's it's an affordable book, number one. It's accessible, number two. So I think if you're a local church pastor, this seems like a, a, something that could help your preaching. Or if you're a lay member who's had just questions about these things, it seems like an ideal resource. So I'm looking forward to talking to him just about some of these topics. But before we jump into that, Mitch, I don't know if everybody knows who you are. So maybe give us a little bit of background and just you know, your life, what you're doing now, and what got you interested in these topics.
2: Sure. Thanks, guys. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you on your podcast. I enjoy what you do, and I'm glad to talk about this topic today with you. Uh, My name is Mitch Chase. I live in Louisville, Kentucky with my wife, Stacy. Uh, We have four sons, and I'm a local pastor of Cosmosdale Baptist Church. I've pastored this church for almost nine years as their preaching pastor, And uh, it's a joy to work alongside uh, elders and deacons here that love the Lord um, on the southwest side of Louisville. I've been in Louisville for 10 years. I came to do my Ph.D. under Jim Hamilton at Southern Seminary. And uh, so that's what brought us to Louisville. And we've been in Louisville ever since. Uh, I earned my doctorate in biblical studies finishing in 2013. Really uh, jazzed for years prior to that under Dr. Hamilton's influence about biblical theology. Uh, the subject of typology is part of that whole um, that whole cluster of topics, and um, Jim Hamilton is probably the gentleman who introduced me many years ago um, in a in a in a class setting at southwestern when he was uh, there before Louisville um, took him up at Southern Seminary. I uh, I remember hearing typological interpretation, seeing him uh, offer different examples, and that was probably my my earliest exposure in seriousness. I've, uh, I've read uh, textbooks for uh, undergrad studies before seminary that probably dealt with the topic, but I don't know that I ever seriously thought through it. Uh, so seminary was a, a very formative time for me on this subject, and uh, it's been fun to think through as a local pastor, uh, thinking through Old and New Testament unity how Christ can be proclaimed from the text. This is my, my weekly responsibility, right? So I want to I be faithful to preach the Word. And I have found that uh, the subjects of my book, 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory, have been uh, very germane to my uh, work as a preacher. And then I, I teach part-time at Boyce College at Southern and uh, Southern Seminary. And in my courses with students, this is a frequent topic of interest. Um, I've been, I've been uh, blessed to be able to um, see this used in classrooms and uh, edify students, and I want, uh, I want us just to grow as faithful readers of Scripture in uh, such a topic like this. It's deeply historical, and um, it's also deeply personal to me, so I'm glad to be with you guys talking about it.
1: Yeah, thanks, Mitch. We really do appreciate you giving us some time. Um, <clears throat> a lot of our listeners are going to know what what typology is, what allegory is, but we're going to have some who who really don't have any idea. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, just the person in the pew, um, who listens. Um, most Southern Baptists just sitting in the pew have not been exposed uh, to these ideas. Um, especially maybe if they have no training at all. Um, outside of the local church, so <clears throat> it's probably going to be good if we just kind of lay a basic foundation. So when we use the word typology and we use the word allegory, what exactly is it that we're talking about?
2: Sure. I think <clears throat> I think in order to get at the essence of it, I want to offer an example that Jesus gives in Matthew 12. And I think of this example with um, the story of Jonah. Matthew 12, Jesus is talking about how the Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the earth. And Jonah had been Uh, Three Days and Three Nights in the Belly of the Fish. And Jesus is drawing a correspondence, which is really key to a typological reading of a text. He's looking at correspondences or parallels with an earlier story. And it escalates because Jesus is greater than Jonah. Something greater than Jonah is here, he says in Matthew 12. This means um, if we can take this as a lens to to, um, get the essence of typology, we're thinking about earlier texts that have correspondences and escalation toward later texts. And Christological types have to do with earlier texts or stories anticipating Jesus. Uh, So the the essence of typology is trying to look at how earlier stories, people, events anticipate the person and work of Jesus. We, um, We assume that the unity of Scripture is intact for the divine providential work of the Lord to use earlier stories and events to point forward. So we're saying that typological interpretation is something within the text that we're noticing, not something that we are bringing to the text to violate its intent or to do something strange with the Bible. Uh, we're, We're wanting to follow the cues of Jesus and the apostles, and they look at the Old Testament as something full of Christ to anticipate his person and work. Uh, The story of Jonah is a good way to get at that, uh, because the story of Jonah, when you look in Jonah chapter one and two, it doesn't necessarily look messianic. Uh, There's no explicit prophecy about the coming Savior. And yet Jesus can look at these stories as patterns that are messianic, and these patterns become prophetic uh, in their own right as well. Um, if I were to give a definition, very commonly you'll see people offer some standard, uh, a standard definition like a person, event, or institution. And, uh, and that is absolutely right. If I could broaden it a little bit, I would also include things like uh, an office that might appear earlier in the Old Testament, like the office of a king or the office of the priesthood. Uh, something like a, a thing a thing like the rock in the wilderness um, that uh, Moses strikes in Exodus 17, something like the veil of the tabernacle, which the Hebrews writer ties to the flesh of Jesus, opening a new and better way for us. Um, I would also include things like uh, a um, uh, a um, so there's people, um, there's offices, there are places. Uh, you can think about like Jerusalem in the Old Testament as anticipating a uh, a new Jerusalem to come. We're we're um, wanting to follow how the New Testament authors read these Old Testament documents, and it's not just about a person being a type or an event being a type. They see anticipations of Christ all over the place, and um, that doesn't mean we want to be reckless with it, but we want to look at the ways they read the Old Testament and see how we might also read the Old Testament similarly.
1: We talk about typology and allegory. We we have a, a pretty clear distinction, um, I think, in, in the modern church and the way we talk about this. But um, <clears throat> I, th- I think maybe, and I've started reading through your book, and I think you, you say early on in the book that maybe that distinction wasn't so clear um, in the early church and how they interpreted Scripture. So maybe some of what we... Call typology. They would have just saw it as maybe a different form of allegory. So maybe walk us through the relationship between the two. And how is allegory different, yeah. but how are they also similar?
2: Yeah, that I love that question. I think that when you when you look at the early church interpretations, they are they're engaging in figural reading of texts, which um, look for deeper significance to stories, things that can anticipate the christological work in the New Testament with Jesus. And they're not always telling you, "All right, here I'm. I'm engaging in what you guys would call typological reading, or what you guys would call allegorical reading." Uh, it seemed it seemed under the heading of a spiritual sense, and the early interpreters they the early interpreters um, broke the text into literal and spiritual senses. They wanted to affirm the truthfulness of Scripture and read it canonically. And reading it canonically meant, well, we're going to also see things as later readers that might not have been evident to the earliest audience or even clear in the mind of the earliest author. And um, that doesn't mean canonical reading violates the intent of the author. It's just to affirm that the divine authorship of Scripture um, leads us to read the Bible more holistically rather than compartmentalizing this text in this era or in this genre. Now um as time unfolds i think that you you see you see historical warrant or historical um requirements being embedded in the way people have thought about typology so that we're not dealing with fictional events. We're dealing with historical events and types are historical. And as uh, allegorical reading um, unfolded, and as you see examples across the history of the church, I think we can look back in hindsight and see that allegorical readings didn't have to necessarily be rooted in something historical. You see visions or parables of Jesus, uh, that are embedded with symbols and certain figures to, um, to offer a allegorical reading would be, it would not require us seeing it as a historical person or a historical uh, description that Jesus is offering or that the prophet is seeing in their oracle. Um, and, and so the way I try to break down some distinctions between typological reading and allegorical reading is to say that in hindsight, all these centuries later, we can look back at what the the early church and later readers were doing, and we can recognize that they are reading typologically. They're seeing events and people and places and offices, real historical things that are anticipating Jesus, his person and his work. Um, We also can see certain stories or visions, or parables, or poetic expressions that um, that have symbols or significance deeper than the words on the surface, and we would consider that allegorical reading. Either way, we ought to be readers who look for textual arguments and warrant for something we're proposing, and um, and when we get to the area of you know typology and allegory. We are are dealing with controversial biblical interpretations uh, or reading strategies, and and this is because some people don't think we should read typologically beyond what the New Testament authors have already identified. Um, Some people are rightly concerned about allegorical abuses, and therefore they would not want to even tread close to this and would dismiss this as a reading strategy altogether. And and therefore we want to be... um, Humble readers, we want to be historically aware of how widespread these strategies have been in our uh, cloud of witnesses before us, so that um, we want to be we want to be discerning, nuanced readers ourselves, looking for good evidence. If we have been frustrated with other offerings of these readings that maybe weren't grounded well textually,
0: so you're talking good evidence being grounded well textually. You know, I think back when I was in college, I was told what the apostles, their interpretive method, what they're doing—that's not something we can do. Yeah. Um, and I think the primary reason they're saying that is because they look at some of the excesses that they, they seem to see in the early church, so they they feel uncomfortable with something like what Augustine's doing with, I guess. Uh, what the parable of the good Samaritan where he seems to assign right. meaning to every single detail. And then I think they get uncomfortable with that. So then they just revert. Well, I don't know how to control all of these things. Therefore I'm going to bring it down to just what I can trust and know that I can control. But it seems like what, what you're saying that there are some guardrails and some guidance in how we do this. So what does that really look like? Yeah. What is that, what does the guidance look like for us?
2: Yeah. So part of the concern that people express is how would we know when we're crossing the line? So why would we want to engage in this? It just seems reckless, uh, unnecessarily reckless. And I like how Patrick Schreiner put it one time. He said that, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase a tweet of his, but uh, the essence of it is uh, hermeneutics is not just about following the right formulas. If it was, everybody would know all the answers to the equations already. It's more an art and not as much a science. And and I don't I don't diminish, you know, strategies and criteria I, in the in the book I offer them. What I'm saying is over time and with the consultation of the saints who have gone before us and reading in the community of the saints in our contemporary setting, we are we are more prone to be faithful readers in that way than going our own way and coming up with our own subjective notions about things. I I think that we need people in our lives that if we offer a reading of scripture and say you know what do you think about this does this seem off base to you does this seem close to the text and if you're the only person in church history who's ever thought that that might not be a good thing at all interpretively um and i i think though we want to be we want to be people who are looking at the methods of the apostles and not dismissing them. When we read the old Testament, we're going to take our criteria and our cues from someone. And in the new Testament, Jesus teaches his apostles to read the old Testament. He, um, he teaches the apostles in the book of acts before he ascends more about the kingdom of God. And he was teaching. He was with them for weeks before his ascension. And, and we we should expect that these people would search the Old Testament to proclaim and understand Christ, even if they wouldn't be an inspired scripture writer later on. Jesus and the apostles are to be our method for reading the Old Testament. And I know that's a controversial claim. Uh, the first time I heard that was from Jim Hamilton, actually, uh, when I had a class with him on the book of Isaiah. And, and I remember thinking, what a crazy claim that sounded like. He said, we need to imitate the moves of the biblical authors, and I thought boy this is this just seems on the surface of it wrong because i 'm not an apostle and and his whole um, His whole explanation boiled down to the fact that none of us are inspired in any interpretation we offer, but if we are going to study the text and and we can trust that the the apostles have rightly read the Old Testament then we need to follow closely how they're reading it and study that, because this is an authoritative reading strategy the Spirit has inspired. If we abandon that, if we, if we leave behind the apostolic method of reading the Old Testament, um, it would be difficult to feel more confident with the alternative, given that we've rejected what's been embedded by the Spirit as inspired and authoritative. So I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> I could keep going, but it's a, hu- it's a huge subject.
1: It's so funny to me. Like I, I sit here and I, I just want to laugh because I, I think about, I feel like maybe everybody who's come to, you know, appreciate the spiritual sense and allegory and typology you, you, if you come from just say a typical Southern Baptist background, like you fight it at first. So I remember sure. three or four years ago, <clears throat> I I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. We were in Jersey Mike's. So it was me and Morgan Bird, who's been on the podcast several times. And he was trying to convince me. He was like, yeah, man, we've got to interpret the Bible like the apostles did. And I just remember beating the table, like saying, I'm not an apostle. <laughs> like, I can't do that. And, you know, it's just so funny looking back on it now. And, you know, really, that was kind of the way I, I, I thought about it until I read Craig Carter's book. um in, yes. Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition. That kind of like. Really changed the way I viewed the Bible um, and how I thought I about it. Interpret, yeah, it, it changed how I thought about interpretation. <clears throat> so I think what something that might be helpful is so a lot of us were trained um, in grammatical historical interpretation,
2: right?
1: And and what you're not saying is that grammatical, you know, historical interpretation is wrong or that it's bad. What as I understand it, what you're saying is. And what somebody like Carter would say is that's good and that's part of the process, but that's not where we end. That's more like where we should begin. So so maybe if there's any listeners out there who are thinking that you're just totally – and you've already said you're not doing this, but you're just setting aside what the human author intends, that it doesn't matter. Maybe speak to that person and and tell them you know, that that's not exactly what's happening here at all.
2: Yeah. I'm, so in Matthew 2. You have in Matthew two one of the the most um, disputed verses where where it says this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son and in Matthew two fifteen he's citing Hosea 11.1. 1. what I what I think is important that G K Beale has drawn attention to uh, not just in his book the New Testament use of the Old but in multiple resources is that. The language of fulfillment is what Matthew uses there. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And in Hosea 11.1, 1, there's not something innately messianic when you read that verse right there initially. It seems like Hosea, um, or, or rather, Matthew is reading Hosea with a larger matrix or pattern of things that he has in mind and calling the event of Jesus uh, in Matthew 2:15 a fulfillment of Hosea 11:1. If I'm concerned about grammatical historical exegesis, I'm going to be concerned about how the Bible writers talk about scripture being fulfilled. I'm going to be concerned about the language they're employing, what context they're drawing upon. And and therefore I think it it, it is incumbent upon us who care about grammar and who care about history to to say, well, grammatically historically, how do we follow Matthew's exegesis? of Hosea 11:1. And and so not only are we not dismissing grammatical historical exegesis, I'm trying to suggest that reading canonically by looking at the matrix of Hosea's story and what's going on in Israel and larger ideas about Israel being the corporate son of God, like uh, Exodus 4:22 says, and Jesus being the son of God in Matthew, that these are broader connect connection points that are exegetical. Typological reading is exegesis. It might not be limited to the grammar and history in one particular verses context. It might actually draw links and threads through multiple passages across the Testaments even. But but, typological exegesis is trying to give attention to grammar and history. Without question, my concern with someone who would push against typology and and insist instead on grammatical historical exegesis, I think they're setting up a false dichotomy. Mm-hmm. I look at grammatical historical exegesis as something that ought to include typological reading.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think yeah, I think it's, it's stating the obvious, but you know we need to re- constantly remind ourselves that when we're reading the Bible, you know we're reading a book that is utterly unique, you know, you yeah. know, the Bible, the Bible is in the sense, in the sense that we can't just make it say whatever we want, want it to say. Yeah. It's like reading any other book, but it's not any other book. It's not like reading the newspaper. So, That's you know, right. I, I I tweeted out um, a couple of days ago, a quote from the book and I'll, I'll get it wrong, but you know, basically the essence of it was, you know, that if if context is king, then canon is the king of kings. So we yeah. need to interpret each verse or each, you know, section of the scripture that we're reading in light of the entire context. And I mean, I think that's that's kind of a light bulb moment for most people that we, you know, we we don't have to just be hyper focused on exactly what the human author intended um, and, and we need to be a little bit more focused on, I think, more focused on what the divine author intends in that right. matrix of the canon. And I think well, that's so helpful.
2: And and what you're hitting on, Brandon, is is just right on because our assumptions about the nature of the Bible are going to influence our hermeneutical methods. And if we are suspect about the Bible's unity, or we're not convinced that we should go beyond what we can demonstrate as human authorial intent, if we um, if we would not if we would not factor in what the saints of old have presumed about the text then typological reading allegorical reading they really fall apart as reading strategies how can you sustain them typological reading assumes an earlier intent and story and unity that is unfolding across the testaments we if you if you dismiss these theological assumptions about the Bible, there's no typological reading to, it's just your yeah. imaginative imposition on the text. And how could you argue otherwise? So your presumptions about scripture, your presuppositions, um, they really do They really do support or undermine theological method.
0: Yeah, I can't help but think though, it seems that there are, obj- even if it's not a good objection, that there's some sort of genetic objection. Well, I see origins practice which I guess depending on who you're talking to maybe maybe it's bad maybe it's not maybe it's not what it actually says to be but they see this extravagant stuff and if they look at the medieval period where all these potential negatives come out um, that they have these just red flags but it seems that if we take the canon like Brandon's talking about like you're talking about as the interpretive grid that, that can help us and for me at least the light bulb for me went on when I was taking Dr. Pennington's I think Greek exegesis of Matthew course. And he has a yes. spectrum where it's kind of this more like literal your grammatical or historical stuff. And then over on the right side is this more being guided by the spirit into these types of practices. Hmm. And I think we often forget that the Holy spirit has a role in the interpretive process. That's and right. if we just stick to a mathematical type of grammatical historical exegesis, we're almost cutting him off from the practice of exegesis altogether. So, at least for me, that was what kind of turned the light bulb to me.
2: Well, I think that there is a fear of being wrong that interpreters have. We don't want to be wrong. Well, who of us would be? We want to, or who would, have, who of us uh, would, would just be okay with that? We hold the interpretations we think uh, because we're convinced they're right, at least for the time being. And we change our minds when we're convinced otherwise. And, and if someone, um, is driven by a fear of being wrong, or they can't control strongly the outcome, they can really be reluctant to engage in what feels like to them a risky endeavor. Now, I think with canonical restraints, with um, textual arguments that are required for allegorical or typological readings, with the interactions we have with our contemporaries or the saints of old, we are on good ground to not see this as a reckless enterprise. You can you can see things that Origin gets right, and you can see things that Origin is way off on. And the same thing with Augustine. We don't want to dismiss the presuppositions these gentlemen have about the Bible, but that doesn't mean we go every place they go either. And this is true with modern interpreters. We read, we read folks today, and, 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 and we appreciate preaching today, where we can, we can certainly affirm the direction certain people take with texts. But we wouldn't affirm the direction that everybody's exegesis goes in every point. And, and I wouldn't want us to merely take a few case examples from church history and dismiss entire reading strategies. That would seem an overblown reaction in my judgment. If, uh, if I could offer an example for a moment. I, I was thinking about uh, this a few weeks ago, and I was talking with some folks about David's uh, defeat of Goliath with the five stones, and if you or it, well he uses one stone, but he picks up five from a brook. sometimes allegorical readings in church history have offered a proposal about a number here or a number there. well what if we what if we focus in on first Sam, first Samuel seventeen um, you have these five stones that David picks up now there might be somebody in church history that says, All right, five stones' That represents the five. This maybe we're thinking about elements on the earth, and we're thinking about fire and water and air, and or maybe somebody is talking about constellations in the sky, or you know countries that are part of the United Nations. I think you can you can recognize when somebody um, instinctively is offering a bad read of the number five, but if we remember historically that uh, well, Philistia has five villages. Ekron and Ashkelon and Gath, and Goliath is actually from one of them, then all of a sudden the number five might not be so silly of uh, of something that can connect to the historical moment that it's in. If somebody offers uh, a read of five stones that deals with modern countries or constellations, that is much less likely uh, a correct read than offering a historical example of Philistia and its five cities, of which Goliath is from, uh, with, with mm-hmm. Gath. And, and so I'm just I'm just saying, like, that's a different if you look at these options, they are not all alike. You you would not be able to demonstrate the same kind of historical or exegetical warrant for the mm-hmm. three of those. And and therefore, I think we can develop instincts and skills as interpreters to say this would be more likely over mm-hmm. here. These would be not even in bounds at all.
0: So I think we've talked about some historical examples practicing this. Do you, are there any unique Baptist con- contributors to this area? I think hmm. Benjamin Keach seems to come to mind. as He one was going to come to
2: mind for sure. You know, I've I, I cited a few places from um, from Keach. He has a book called "Types and Metaphors of the Bible." It is uh, it's huge. I I was delighted to see this Baptist writer. And theologian uh, delve into all of the things that he did. I would really commend people to read Keach on types and metaphors in the Bible. Very fruitful, very stimulating, and uh, I was I was just thrilled to be able to include him along the way.
1: This isn't something we'd we discussed uh, ahead of time, or something we would talk about. But I'm curious. You know, I think that reading the Bible canonically, um, you know, it it makes us see. Um, something that we've already discussed—that the Bible is not a merely human doc, document, and that you know you can see the providential hand of God and and how the Bible was shaped and formed. Do you think that <clears throat> reading the Bible in a canonical way has an apologetic value that maybe some other interpretations don't have?
2: I I do think this. If if you um, if you look at some of the reasons that typological and allegorical readings were offered in church history, they did have a concern to convince unbelievers, even to convince Jews, about the uh, authenticity, the reliability of the Christian gospel. It is, If you think about the intricacies of the Bible, the interbiblical exegesis that you can demonstrate with the most incredible nuance and care threading throughout Genesis to Revelation— there is what John Piper calls a self-authenticating glory that belongs to the Bible, and there is no other. There's no other book like this. If if you can, if you can, with patience, demonstrate um, with with many examples over a period of time in your own preaching. I think interbiblical exegesis in the corporate worship setting strengthens the saints' confidence in the Bible. For sure, there's an apologetic point here. I've, I've often shared that uh, with my classes that, look, there are really good arguments for the faithful textual transmission of the Old and New Testaments. There are good arguments about prophetic fulfillment and archaeological uh, details and confirmations. I, I love reading these things. However, Aside from those really good arguments, and we need them all, careful biblical exegesis, canonical interpretation has done more to strengthen my conviction about the authority and divine inspiration of Scripture than all of those other good arguments combined. Hmm. And I love those other arguments. However, I think uh, canonical exegesis might be underestimated by many as to how it can strengthen the faith of the saints and and really be a strong apologetic argument for the unbeliever who just thinks of the bible as a product of man without any coherence to it and um and we can we have we have uh um resources and if we have the time and patience we can demonstrate what we mean by this this is not a mere work of man mm-hmm.
0: I'm curious, in your experience as a pastor, do you feel that most normal church members are more comfortable with this type of interpretation just naturally, intuitively as a Christian than they are historical grammatical exegesis, or is it the other way around?
2: You know, I'd have to think more about that. My instinct tells me that they are comfortable with this kind of preaching. I I don't know... I don't know what the polling data would show, you know what I mean? But uh, in the churches that I've served in, which is really the only firsthand account I can offer, I've served in some churches in Texas and here in Kentucky, and and I and I think that wanting to proclaim Jesus from the Old Testament is something people are very open to. And, and seeing deeper meanings in a particular passage that you can show, showing your homework about how you get to this answer. Um, I, I find that people welcome it and that they can, they can see when they can see the work that you're doing and you're not just offering a suggestion without trying to demonstrate. You can, you can build their own confidence in the text and and I think that it in, I think it brings greater delight as a hearer to see the connectivity across the Bible. When um when I when I hear from folks whether it's in courses or in a church setting about a particular passage of scripture that they see in a fresh way or connections to earlier texts that they've never noticed before, these things had been there all along, but the delight of reading something. Not just outside of its immediate context, but even across the canon, can fill the reader with such a sense of wonder and delight. I think it's thrilling in the settings of corporate worship. I think it's thrilling in times of personal devotion. So I would commend these reading strategies because these have been edifying people for thousands of years. Uh, this is not something new. And, um, and even though we might get things wrong, we're not going to be perfect interpreters. Um, I like what Robert Smith, um, I love his preaching. And, and in a lecture one time, Dr. Smith said, I would rather... See Christ where He isn't, then miss Him where He is,
1: mm, and so yeah, his heard that quote. So his good.
2: instinct exactly. And I don't know if Doctor Smith is quoting someone else. I can't remember if he cited anyone. I'm happy no, to, I, yeah, to link well, it.
1: To I, him. I've heard it from him. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, great.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I I think that's the right leaning to have as a Bible reader. We we so want to delight in Jesus, and and we want to follow the cues of the interpreters that we we want to welcome. Um, the Bible in all of its fullness to our hearts and minds, knowing that this side of heaven, we will see through a glass dimly, but but we will still see wonderful things.
1: Amen. Well, I, I guess we'll wrap up here in just a minute, but before we do that, um, we did want to ask you for any recommended resources you might have for somebody, yeah. you know, who's brand new to this. Oh, I think sure. your book would be a great place um, for folks to, to maybe get a start. Um, but you know, for those who are maybe more advanced in this, what are some some resources that you've benefited from as uh, you study this kind of thing?
0: Yeah, for me at least, the only ones I know of are like these super archaic dissertations in type font from like, that looks like a typewriter actually put it together. So I'd love your your right. recommended resources.
2: Well, I. I do. I, I appreciate um, the feedback that I've gotten about this particular book from folks. I've had folks in our church read through 40 questions about typology and allegory, and um, you know there are paragraphs that are not always easy to get through, especially some of the historical uh, surveys that I'm offering. But it it is a book with the intent to be accessible to folks who don't feel like they need academic training in order to to read through it. Um, one particular book that I've appreciated was Canon, Covenant, and Christology by Matthew Barrett that was released last year. I've, I love everything Matthew Barrett read, uh, writes, and I, uh, this particular book, I would recommend. Uh, it's more intermediate, but I do think that the content of it is uh, just a wonderful feast for the for the reader. G.K. Beale continues to be helpful. Uh, from... God's Indwelling Presence is an example of something that is a mini-me version of uh, the temple and the church's mission. And God's Indwelling Presence and the temple and the church's mission are really important books for thinking canonically and typologically. His handbook on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Uh, so that's a, that's a few G.K. Beale books there. He has proven really um, helpful to me. Another intermediate book that I know uh, you guys had mentioned earlier was Interpreting Scripture with a Great Tradition by Craig Carter. I think that's a must read right now. I've mentioned Jim Hamilton several times, and I unashamedly continue to do so. Uh, I know I've I've, uh, recommended stuff from him on other podcasts, and I I am eager for people to read his work because Dr. Hamilton has not only very much affected the way I think about the Old Testament, but he's one of the foremost writers as a contemporary on biblical theology and typological reading. And he, he wrote a book called What is Biblical Theology? A Guide to the Bible's Story, Symbolism, and Patterns. And symbolism and patterns are crucial to the subjects of typological and allegorical reading. I would commend what is biblical theology to people. Dr. Hamilton is mm-hmm. going to publish a book with Zondervan next year on typology, and uh, and that'll be a must read as well. Uh, these are these are helpful resources that I'm truly convinced you know thoughtful readers and students and 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 laymen can work through, um, even if they don't read it cover to cover in every book. I think that. Um, I think that the value of these resources far surpasses whether somebody can commit to every paragraph of the book. Mm. We need to read stuff like this, and um, I always enjoy Voss. Gerhardus Voss has a book called Biblical Theology, and and he is he's always worth reading, especially with his high view of Scripture, uh, his way of trying to read the the Old Testament christologically. So I would commend Voss to people. So those are a few a few um, resources to rattle off there.
1: Yeah, I I wanted to, just while we're on this, um, pitch a book really quick that I've started to work through. And I think this book is intended for um, actually to be a college textbook, Um, but I think it's accessible for lay people. But it's The Story Retold by G.K. Bill and Benjamin Mm. Glad. Um, I have really enjoyed this. Uh, So the subtitle is A Biblical Theological Introduction to the New Testament. And you're going to see like a lot of the stuff that Mitch has been talking about today. Like put into practice uh, in this book, so that would be wonderful. Something, something good. I think that we could use uh, in our churches.
2: Fantastic, Brandon. I I have that book on my shelf, and I can't wait to read it. It's come very highly recommended. Yeah,
0: awesome. Well, Mitch, I think we want to thank you, for, number one, for coming on. I think this has been terrific. A great intro. We commend your book. Everybody, go get a copy of it. Uh, I think Mitch is just you know one of those models. He's a local church pastor. He's a Baptist, so it fits fits us pretty well. And I think he's trying to think well, think deeply about these issues in a way that is uh, serving the academy, but also serving the local church. So I think it's a great dual role, your model. I I think you, you've got a Twitter, so people can go follow you on Twitter.
2: I, I'm on Twitter at, at Mitchell Chase, uh, full, full name Mitchell. So at Mitchell Chase, I'm on Twitter <laughs> uh, a lot. So I'm, I'm thankful to be with you guys, though. I appreciate the invitation to talk about these subjects and the book. And I uh, hope it's a blessing
0: to people. Awesome. And all you analytic theology nerds, maybe you can do some analytic theology work on typology. Because <laughs> I don't see anything uh, on that at all. Um, but anyway, for everybody who's been listening, we thank you for tuning in. This has been the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.